Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Earlier this week, I got to speak with Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO of Bank of America. His bank has a special vantage point on the state of the U.S. economy, with its extensive connections with consumers, as well as the full range of businesses, small and large. I asked Brian what he's seeing. Commercial side to take that first. The the lending demand is down because the final demand is still shoring up. And so you had this panic borrowing. So if you came in through March and you had this panic borrowing where everything went way up, and then it's come back down to that level. And it's it's basically back to, you know, sort of back to where it was before the crisis and, and even a little bit lower. And that, that's a good news. That means companies, you know, are ready to go as they start to see opportunities and the supply chain start to work and stuff like that. On the consumer side, it's been interesting. It, it, where I, our basic belief, our, our research team, is that the United States will be down 4% for the year. Uh, and then next year will be up 5% or so. But But the key is to think about it quarter by quarter. You had a, a deep drop in the economy last quarter. You're back up to where 95% of the economy is back, basically restored on a quarterly basis. And then we're going to work out from there. But under, behind that was a you know a 1% to 2% growth economy. So the idea of it recovering that last five percentage points, you know, it's going to take a while to grind through that. Now, the reality is every estimate, including you heard from uh, Chair Powell, has gotten better rather than worse. And, and why is that? That's because consumer activity stays strong. So the fiscal stimulus, the monetary uh, stimulus, the programs that Fed had, you know, between the government, the government and the administration, Congress, between what the Fed did, they basically, you know, filled the hole, for lack of a better term, to bring the economy back up to level. And now we've got to let it work out from there. And they probably need more stimulus for very defined places that are still in, in difficulty. 
restaurants, state local governments, uh, uh, schools, uh, performing events, venues, some of the industries, airlines and other things that you just can't have people do at the rate we had before. But the rest of the businesses, you know, the dentist's office is back busier than they've ever been. So what do we see? Consumer spending is up year over year. That's up year over year. You know, and 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 then that's good news. And so we're seeing it start to grow finally. It was it was growing at ten percent, it fell, and it's worked us all the way back to even and we'll see it probably start growing year over year. We're seeing it grow year over year so far in September, we'll see how we end up. So that's good news for the economy, meaning that amount of, amount of activity that goes on in our economy is restored. Brian, you said it. Chair Powell said we're better off right now than we thought we would be at this point. But he also said there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And I'll name three of them. You mentioned one, fiscal stimulus, further fiscal stimulus. How badly do we need that? We have an election coming up. And by the way, there's a coronavirus. We don't really know about a vaccine. And I think we're a vaccine. This is a health care crisis. And, and I said it back in March and I said it even with you a few months ago in, in our interview, it, 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 people can't forget that. This is a healthcare crisis. And so what's happened over the last six months in the healthcare crisis has gone on longer than that is you're seeing the potential for a vaccine, but importantly, you're seeing better just behavior to keep the thing from spreading as fast. So as we're seeing it in the Northeast, for example, you've seen it crest over and the infection rates are much, much different than they were early on. And you're seeing that the infection rates fall off. That's good news. And you're seeing the treatment regimens being different. And you're also seeing because of the personal behavior, the people higher risk and staying even more careful, the, you know, the impact of the virus is still hugely hurtful to the people who get it, but not as bad outcomes. And so that's all good news as we wait for the, for the vaccine, which is sometime out there over the next several months, and that would be uh, good news. To it. But until that's in everybody's arm, you're still going to have the drag of, you know, will people go back to their behavior before? So that's that's the one thing. It's a healthcare crisis, and that's all. What, what we need, I think, is pretty straightforward. You need more stimulus for the people. If you think about the analogy, we're all on one side of the river, and we all had to cross the river. We all needed a bridge. And so a lot of people are across the river. Certain segments of the economy, you know, that are even doing better than they did before the crisis. Other segments are doing just fine. Uh, take the medical industry is wholly back to normal now because the hospital capacity doesn't need to be held aside for the virus treatment. The housing industry is strong. The construction industry is strong. So those are across the river, so just let them go. Where you need help is restaurants and, and things like that. And so the, the next round of stimulus ought to be focused again on the areas that need the most help. And so PPP, the next round, you know, should there be a second bite of the apple? I think so for the certain companies because this went on longer than we thought it was going to go on. And so we need to help those companies. But I think they need to look at, you know, small business, unemployment benefits continue. The $300 is just going in the system now, frankly, because it took a delay to get it through. they continuing some supplement to help people maintain their standing because it's the right human thing to do. And then on top of that, then focus in on these other industries that are difficult, uh, state and local government support, nonprofit uh, performance venue support, you know, things like that just need to be supported till we get to the point where the usage of them can come up and they can and they can uh, get back to normal and cross that same bridge. The rest of many people crossed it. We got to help everybody else get get across. So, so part of what has supported the economy has been the Federal Reserve, and particularly saying they're going to keep the interest rates at zero or just over zero until 2023. Now we're told that's got to affect Bank of America and its business, particularly its lending business, as it is really affected by the yield curve. So how is it affecting you in terms of net interest income? Can you make it up on volume or on fees or in other parts of the business you, you can it just you just have to grind through 
the down and to get to the up. And, and, and right now, this quarter, we, we told people it'll probably be at the low point. And it seems to, because the, the, the interest rate environment accelerated. And I, the Fed pushed the interest rates down intentionally, and that's what they're supposed to do. And they, they've done a good job. So, look, people always say, how are you going to deal with this? I said, geez, I've been CEO since, one, since January 1st, 2010 to now, and I, we've only had a couple years where rates were above zero, so we know how to deal with it, Bank of America, and we'll, we'll go out and work on it. That was part of my interview with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. We'll have more on that next week as part of the Bloomberg Equality Summit. Coming up, like all the rest of us, M&A has been hit hard by the pandemic. We talk with Evercore founder and senior chairman Roger Altman about whether we began to see a resurgence this week. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The pandemic and the economic shutdown it triggered have taken a toll on mergers and acquisitions this year, with Bloomberg numbers showing them down by more than a third. But this week, we may have seen some resurgence with a series of big deals, including Gilead and NVIDIA. Roger Altman, founder and senior chairman of Evercore, thinks this could mark the beginning of a turnaround. I think we're seeing a recovery uh, in M&A volume, uh, as you say, uh, on, on any trailing basis, six months, 12 months, uh, it's down from 2019 levels on a run rate basis. But now, uh, as you can see in recent days with the spate of announcements, um, I think uh, a recovery is underway. Uh, I'm not smart enough to know how fast this recovery will occur. Uh, but um, generally speaking, um, uh, the freeze that we saw after the virus erupted and the lockdowns took place beginning really in mid-March, the freeze on M&A activity, which extended over about three months, uh, is now being uh, succeeded by a real thaw and um, I think it remains to be seen just how robust this recovery will be, but we're definitely seeing a recovery. Roger, if it's fair to ask it this way, to what extent, if there is a thaw, is it offensive versus defensive? By that I mean, is this because CEOs, uh, companies are seeing great new opportunities in growth that they want to take advantage of? Or is it because some companies are under such stress that they need to consolidate? 
I think it's primarily offensive, at least when it comes to large, uh, large combinations. And if you look at a series of big ones in recent days, uh, you know, uh, why is NVIDIA interested in ARM and trying and doing that now or trying to subject to regulatory approval? And the answer is that SoftBank decided to sell ARM and NVIDIA saw an opportunity. Um, I think the same applies to uh, the group, including Oracle, that is uh, endeavoring to buy TikTok or, or invest, I should say, in TikTok. Uh, and I think the same applies to Gilead uh, in this recent large announcement. So I think at least when it comes to the really large ones, the more offensive than they are defensive. Uh, to what extent is the Federal Reserve helping this process or hurting it for that matter? Because we have money that's, if it's not free, it's pretty darn close to free. Well, the Federal Reserve, stepping back a bit, the Federal Reserve deserves tremendous credit for uh, rescuing the financial system and the, and the global economy, really from a series of very dangerous moments following the, the eruption of the virus and the lockdown. There were a few days there when financial markets really were not working. Uh, people even having difficulty financing positions in treasury securities. And that was very a very dangerous moment, or a set of moments. And the Fed uh, acting swiftly broadly and powerfully, like it did in 2008, 2009, but in this case on a much bigger scale, um, really played the central role, although fiscal policy also was important, the three different, uh, or three and a half really different COVID economic relief bills. Um, the Fed played the central role in um, allowing the financial markets to ease and of course they're in really good shape now very good shape and the economy to begin to recover so i take my hat off to the fed it's on a straight a job not not it's not hindering anything without the fed we'd be in a bad place and i'm not commenting on MA, i'm talking about america but at the same time is it driven prices up asset prices up if you're looking to buy something is it more expensive well uh before the, the virus erupted, interest rates were very low by historical standards, very low. So the impact of ultra-low interest rates and abundant credit availability on valuations, that impact was in place before the intervention I'm talking about. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why interest rates are very low. The Fed is not the only reason. After all, the long-term end of the market is not primarily influenced by the Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. uh, the long-term end of the fixed-income markets. But anyway, I don't, that's not a new development. Roger, what may be a new development is the outcome of the election. We have an election coming up in uh, under 50 days now. And two, I think, very different economic approaches set forth by the candidates. President Trump, on the one hand, tends to be in favor of cutting taxes even further, uh, hasn't made much progress on big spending such as infrastructure. Former Vice President Biden, on the other hand, very different, very specific, saying, I'm going to spend a lot of money, invest a lot of money, and I'm going to increase some taxes for some people as a result. Very very different approaches to fiscal. As you look out at those two possibilities, is there a fork, fork in the road for the business community, for the M&A business? 
Well, let's put the M&A business aside because that's, you know, that's a very small part of the equation you're addressing. Um, you know, the answer to that question depends really on um, what you think, what what condition you think this country is in today, both economically and more broadly than that, and what you think it needs. Um, if you think the country is doing great, and by the way, very few people in surveys think that, uh, between 70 and 80 percent of Americans are saying in survey after survey that the country is on the, quote, wrong track, unquote. But if you think the country's doing great, then you presumably think that a continuation of the past four years and all the policies of all kinds um, is what is what's called for. If you think the country needs a different approach, then you don't think that that continuation is what's called for, and you think we need a change. So I think you have to start from that. I, I don't think the country is doing very well. Uh, I mean, there are 11.5 million people that had a job in February that don't have a job today. Um, and if you look at measures of socioeconomic health, like the number of Americans that are reporting food insecurity, uh, the number of Americans that are at risk now of eviction or being evicted, uh, and go on down through a series of metrics like that, I don't think the country is doing very well. That was Roger Altman, founder and senior chairman of Evercore. Coming up, as climate change brings conflagration to California and Oregon, one of Wall Street's most respected leaders says that there are ways to use the markets to address one of the most pressing issues of our time. Former head of Goldman Sachs and Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. But let us not forget one fundamental issue which lies at the heart of our problems. Over a period of years, persistent and growing global imbalances fueled a dramatic increase in capital flows, low interest rates, excessive risk-taking, and a global search for return. These excesses cannot be attributed to any single nation. That was Hank Paulson speaking as Treasury Secretary back at the height of the financial crisis in 2008. Hank has now moved on to another crisis, one that he sees as potentially much, much greater than the downturn 12 years ago. It's what he calls the dramatic extinction episode we are experiencing and the threat to biodiversity on the planet. But given his experience, it's no surprise that he thinks that the markets themselves can and should be brought to bear and, with the help of government, turn things around by making biodiversity itself investable. There's an alarming uh, destruction of biodiversity, forests, uh, wetlands, prairies around the world. And as you said, a staggering extinction episode, which I think has really grave uh, uh, you know, implications for humanity in terms of prosperity and, and the well-being of people on Earth. Now, we're just in, and to put some parameters around this extinction episode, that it's playing out at a thousand times the normal level which means that rather than losing one to five species a year, we're losing a lot. And, you know, if this continues unabated, 
we'd lose you know half of the animals and plants on earth by mid-century and you know this would have an enormous uh, economic impact now we're just in the early stage and you know scientists and economists are in the very early stage of being able to quantify and measure the magnitude of what this means economically but one thing we know for sure the best way to hedge against these risks is to invest in nature and the problem we've had for some time is our economic systems don't really measure nature they don't account for the value of the services provided by the natural world and that's because we have market failures uh, these services and nature is treated as a free good and uh, and so that means that uh, that those who invest in it aren't to conserve it aren't appropriately rewarded those who destroy it aren't appropriately penalized and you know so what what we have done here with, with this study and this study was done in support of and advanced to a big UN convention on biodiversity, something that takes place every 10 years. This will be taking place in China. And what we did, which I really believe, you know, breaks new ground, is we really drilled down on the capital flows into conservation globally, uh, really focused on making the economic case for investing in nature. Right. And then we analyzed in great detail all of the different mechanisms and policies that and tools that could be used to right. uh, to, to, right. to close this gap right. and to j just lay it out very quickly there's some good news and some bad news the bad news is as i said we're losing biodiversity at an alarming rate and the funds that need to be put in to globally need to be invested in conserving nature are, are, are massive amounts. I'm sorry, yeah. just to be clear for our audience, there's a report that's out from the Paulson Institute, your institute, along with the Nature Conservancy and the Cornell Atkinson Center for Sustainability. It's called Financing Nature, and this is all laid out very clearly in that, that report, which I commend to everybody, comes up with that roughly $700 billion a year. You talk about a hedge as a practical matter. Can the markets take care of this on their own? We now have a lot of ESG funds. BlackRock's got a big one. Various people have big... So Goldman Sachs, by the way, you may have heard of them. They have one as well. Could the private sector by itself take care of this? No, no way. As a matter of fact, one of the findings, you know, which is very clearly, was that uh, the private sector can do its part, but without a change in government policies, the private sector is not going to be able to take care of it. And, you know, one, one of the things that's been clear to me over many years in terms of advocating for conservation, you need to get government to act, and government's not going to act without broad public support, broad business support. And to do that, you need to make the economic case. And the private sector has a lot of money that can flow into this area. What the government has to create the conditions for that capital to come in, has to create the proper incentives and financing mechanisms that we lay out a number of those mechanisms or change the subsidies. That was former Treasury Secretary Hank Olson. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We now have our virtual roundtable of not one but two contributors from Harvard, former Treasury Secretary of the Treasury. He is Larry Summers and former Federal Reserve Board Governor Dan Trillo. So, Larry, let's start with you, where the Fed was the big news, I guess, of this week. They came out with their decision. It sounded pretty much like what they said they were going to do back in August with their new strategic strategy. And yet the markets didn't like it at all. What went wrong? It felt like a little bit of a temper tantrum. Markets liked it for a while, then the markets didn't like it. Look, I don't think this is that complicated. The Fed's got its foot on the accelerator to the floor. The car's not going that fast. The Fed says it's going to keep its foot on the accelerator to the floor, but it also says that it's going to be looking around in case there are any accidents and be willing to change that. So people don't feel that great about the situation when... Things are going slowly with the accelerator to the floor. And that's kind of the reality uh, that we're, uh, we're dealing with. I don't think it's within the gift of the Fed to cause our nation to be competent in testing people to control or uh, control COVID. It's not within the gift of the Fed for people to find it in uh, their hearts to respect uh their fellow citizens, regardless of race. And it's not within the capacity of the Fed to provide the fiscal stimulus that uh, the economy needs. So the Fed's doing the best it can. But unfortunately, we live in a world where if it was ever true, it's not right now that the chairman of the Fed is the second most important person in Washington. So, Dan, you served in the Federal Reserve. Uh, do they have, to continue Larry's analogy, an effective speedometer? That is to say, insofar as they're saying, let's get the inflation rate up, we're willing to tolerate more than 2%, is there a speedometer that really tells them where inflation's going? Do they have a theory? Well, no, there's no, uh, there hasn't been a working theory of inflation for central banks for quite some time now. I mean, the flattening of Phillips' curve, which occurred, obviously, some years ago, but the central banks have finally caught up to seeing that uh, it is flat, means that there's really no way to be particularly predictive. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Fed was unanimous in shifting to an approach to monetary policy that looks more at actual inflation rather than uh, predicted inflation based on expectations of uh, where the unemployment rate is going to be going. You know, David, on the, on the question you asked Larry a moment ago, 
I, I mean, I do, I, I do think that there's a bunch of intra-market stuff going on here. I mean, the, 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 if you look at what some of the market commentary said, the disappointment came because Chair Powell didn't go forward with giving some more indication of where quantitative easing would be. That sounded to me like a situation in which there were some financial actors who had certain positions which would have benefited from a little more specificity on QE than they got, but not very much to do with the real economy. So, so Larry, one of the things that I'm intrigued in is the extent to which in the, basically the stock values have been driven by the discount factor. When you get down to zero or close to zero, theoretically, the value of stock could be infinite. Is that part of what's going on with tech, that people are figuring out that part of the value that's put into the stock of tech is actually because the interest rate's so low? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that the longer live the financial asset is, the more sensitive it is to interest rates. And if you're a growth company, you're more you're a longer lived asset in terms of your future profits and your future cash flows than if you're a value uh, company. And that explains a lot about the cleavages that we've seen in the stock market, along, of course, with the fact that various kinds of uh, IT uh, companies have seen their underlying businesses, uh, strengthen because people can't go to stores and uh, can't go uh, outside. So I think that's what's going on. But look, as uh, Bob Rubin used to say during the Clinton administration, uh, markets go up, markets go down, and there are going to be fluctuations and they're not going to be obvious causes for them. So I think it would be a mistake to be over-interpreting yeah. movements of uh, a few percent over a, over a few days. I think the deep truth about our moment is uh, that the Fed doesn't have the capacity to predict inflation with great accuracy and doesn't have the capacity to control inflation with any great efficacy given that it can't move interest rates down and there's not much reason to want to move interest rates up. And so without the ability to predict or control uh, inflation, the Fed becomes a bit more of a sideshow. And for people who have relied on the Fed to make their life work uh, and to achieve what they want, that's a discouraging and perhaps even somewhat disillu uh, disillusioning thing. It, it doesn't mean uh, that the Fed isn't doing the right thing. Uh, there are underlying, there's some underlying uh, realities here that shape the situation. So, Dan, uh, thus far, the markets have been fairly reassured by the, the Fed essentially giving an underpinning to the, the markets. Is there a risk here, a macroprudential risk, basically in having almost free money indefinitely? Well, presumably over time there will be, uh, which obviously counsels uh, renewed attention to uh, financial regulatory policy. You may, you people, your viewers may have noticed that in the Fed's statement of longer term strategy, there was a paragraph about potential financial stability concerns. How that translates into Fed action, I, I, I think they've less, uh, they've less substantially less clear. I mean, they... They're, they're lean against using monetary policy itself 
as a way of restraining um, inflated assets, but they haven't made clear what, if anything, they're prepared to do with regulatory policy, which, by the way, probably isn't adequate to deal with the leverage and short-term financing that hedge funds and REITs and lots of other intermediaries can can uh, uh, engage in. David, I, I just wanted to add something or maybe um, put things in a slightly different way than Larry did a minute ago about the role of the Fed. I'm not sure I'd characterize it as a sideshow quite because for a couple of reasons. One, as a liquidity provider and as a regulator, it's still quite important. Um, and I also agree with what Larry was saying about the diminished capacity of the Fed to rectify the macroeconomic issues and problems that we've got. But I, I actually would say, I would say that I think where the Fed is almost inevitably headed is towards more of a de facto partnership with the Treasury Department, with the executive branch. That is, because of the dependence on fiscal policy uh, to move us out of a uh, situation we're going to be in for quite some time, because of the Fed's commitment to keeping rates low and thus uh, keeping rates at the long end, presumably at the long end of the yield curve low as well as at the short end, I think you're going to see an in almost inevitably an increasing amount of treasury of purchases of treasuries over time. And you're going to see the need for the Fed to think more closely about how it fits in with fiscal developments, debt issuance. Right. And under those circumstances, as those circumstances as I've described them, do not sound like the independent Fed that we've gotten used to since the early 50s uh, when Treasury and the Fed agreed to uh, break apart the cooperative arrangement they had had during the war. And Larry, listen, maybe a truly independent Fed is not what we need right now, but whether it's dependent or independent, this de facto partnership isn't going to get us where we need to go with the economy overall. I mean, long before the COVID-19 hit, you were talking about secular stagnation. We had very modest growth. We did not have productivity growth. What do we need to get productivity growth going again and real fundamental growth going in the economy? Dan and I are basically uh, in agreement you know, some of this has been in the making for a long time. If you thought about the early financial crisis years, every month or every two months, the Fed was proudly announcing that it was going to do quantitative easing, where it was going to issue short-term debt and buy long-term debt in order to stimulate the economy. And the Treasury Department every month was announcing that it was going to issue more long-term debt to lock in low <laughs> rates for the benefit of taxpayers. And basically, they were trading with each other and making the broker-dealers rich. So the idea that we're going to have more coordination, I think, is uh, overdue and welcome. And at a moment when we've got inflation below what we want, I'm not deeply worried about some sacred uh, independence of, uh, of the Fed uh, at all. I also agree with uh, Dan that perhaps I should have said conventional monetary policy is a sideshow because there certainly are important regulatory decisions. And if we have another panic, the Fed will certainly have a crucial role in dealing with uh, that panic. I think with respect to regulation, David, um, the problem always is 
that we realize we should have regulated when we're in a mess and we need more credit, not less credit, and regulation will slow uh, the uh, flow of uh, credit. That was Larry Summers of Harvard. That does it for this special edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.